Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of you unconventional conventionists. Welcome back to Rocky Talkie, a Rocky Horror podcast where we talk about anything and everything Rocky Horror. My name is John. I'm Nikki. And I'm Aaron. Happy December 19th, everyone. How are we doing today? How are we feeling? Stress to discover it's December 19th. You're welcome. We be doing. We be doing. Krimis is literally in like less than a week and i have done absolutely nothing to prepare it time to start shopping oh no shopping i hate shopping (laughs) how has this past week been for the two of you what have y'all done anything fun anything entertaining (sighs) oh cool all right well that answers it from (laughs) mickey well uh here's a good one uh this was the last week of work for me uh, for, for the new year or until the new year. And uh, we had our holiday uh, teams, you know, Zoom Christmas party uh, because that's the dystopian nightmare that we live in now. Yeah. And uh, it was actually pretty fun. Like I, I, I can make fun of it all I want, but it was actually pretty fun. The product people who organized it put together a really cool kind of game show that was you know, your your standard kind of team building game showy kind of thing. But then after they got through all of that stuff, oh, which by the way, on that, uh, I was uh, nominated this year for the uh, biggest Back to the Future fan uh, within our division. So um, handedly won that one. Um, <laughs> and after they got done with all of the awards and the give outs and the shout outs and stuff, uh, they had... A, a group of Zoom Christmas carolers that came on and sang for about 20 minutes or so. Think like four people in Victorian costumes in somebody's basement in front of a green screen. They were actually really good, but I was just kind of sitting there going like, yeah, okay, this is uh, this is a whole market of entertainment now, isn't it? Yep, absolutely is. Yup. So that was that was pretty entertaining, but uh, happy to be done with work for the year. Happy to be on to other things. And uh, just this morning, Meg and I went and got our uh, booster shots. Uh, so we are all set for the holidays, ready to go. And let's just get through this episode before I get a little tired. <laughs> how was uh, how was your week, Nikki? Oh goodness. Um, see, I ninety percent of my life revolves around Rocky, which is. It hurts to say out loud, but it was a lot of Rocky, but we're not going to get into that. But I'm also doing a lot of preparation because like directly following the holidays, my boyfriend is coming here. So I'm excited for that. I'm preparing for that. No, honestly, all week and all week last week and all week the week before, I've just been like stressed out and practicing this choreography for this number that I had to do. And now I'm doing it, and I don't know what to do with myself. Also, I have news. I have news. Ooh. Um, it's not confirmed, but someone may or may not be debuting as Riff in the next in the next year. And Who? by the next year, I mean January of the next year. Who? Take a guess. Their name rhymes with Vicky. Yep, it's Ricky L- Lake. Little Dicky. Little Dicky. <laughs> All right, You're having that, a I'm gonna guest take spot my leave with little from the Dickie? show. <laughs> yep. I love him. That's a throwback. Everybody say congrats, Nikki. Congrats, little Dicky. Okay. <laughs> Congratulations, Nikki. That should be fun. Riff's super fun to play. Yeah, I'm super hot. <laughs> <laughs> 
Isn't yeah. it also your guys' uh, big 20-year kind of anniversary thing going on right now? Yes, on January 7th, we have our 20th anniversary, and it is absolutely insane. We're working so hard to make sure that everything's perfect, and I'm so excited. That's awesome. Big congrats to you guys. John, what have you been doing? So this last week was absolutely fantastic. And the reason why it was fantastic is because I got to see Lin-Manuel Miranda perform in Freestyle Love Supreme two nights back to back. One wasn't good enough? No, one was very good enough. I could have gotten hit by a fucking bus after that first show. So <laughs> through work, I have this partnership with the Theater Development Fund where I'm part of their Passport series, which means that I can get like super cheap Broadway shows they don't have them for every single performance, and a lot of them are weekdays, but every once in a while, you get like a Friday or a Saturday for a show. So last week, I had seen on social media that Tina Fey was going to be joining Freestyle Love Supreme for one night only on Thursday, and I was like, well, I obviously have to go see that. So I went and I bought tickets for the Thursday show, and then immediately after I purchased them, I saw something online that said that Lin-Manuel was going to be at the Friday show, and I was like... Well, I have to buy those, so I bought tickets for the Friday show. And then the Sunday and Monday shows were canceled, and Lynn, because he is an empath, felt really bad, and then he decided to stay in the city all week and was at every single show up until the Friday show. So that meant that he was at the show on Thursday. So on Thursday, I got to see Freestyle Love Supreme with Tina Fey, and Lin-Manuel Miranda on the same stage. And oh, then wow. on Friday, I went by myself to go see Lin-Manuel again. And he truly is a virtuoso. I It blew my mind. Freestyle Love Supreme has been blowing my mind lately. I've seen it like five times. And every single time I go, I'm like, I cannot believe that there are people on this planet that are this talented. <laughs> if you have the opportunity to go see Freestyle Love Supreme, go. I don't think you're going to have the opportunity because it closes in like three weeks and Omicron is destroying New York City right now. But if you do have a chance, go. It's fucking amazing. Even if Lynn isn't in it, which I don't think he is anymore. But go see it. It's fantastic. I had such a great time. 10 out of 10. Loved it. Hey, speaking of celebrity sightings this week, uh, Meg actually gave me an early Christmas present. And uh, we got to go see Anna Gasteyer do her live show. Wow, I love Shut that. up. Oh, it was so good. It was their, it was her uh, holiday-themed show where she's doing stuff off of her latest Christmas album, Sugar and Booze. Absolutely fantastic. That woman has such an incredible voice, man. I really had no idea, just like based on SNL and everything else. They always kind of teased at it, right, with like her doing Celine Dion and whatever. But holy shit, that woman has a set of pipes. Absolutely incredible. Oh, and speaking of celebrities... I think that's a great segue for us to get started with our first segment. Global news. Y'all heard of that single all the way bullshit? Single this dick. Yeah, got him. We've talked previously about Susan Sarandon's forthcoming Fox series Monarch a cable television premiere of one of Loaf's documentaries, and now we can add Barry to the mix of resurgent Rocky stars coming out with new releases. Single All the Way is a new Netflix film that has debuted just in time for the holiday season. It features an absolutely stacked cast, including Barry Bostwick. 
The movie plays as your typical Hallmark holiday romp with a doting family ever expectant for their up-and-coming children to be saddled with a partner, or at least a date for the holiday season. But this movie comes with a special twist. The unmarried child is gay. <gasps> Michael Urie, who you might know from Ugly Betty, plays the progenital son too busy with his busy businessman city living work life to pay attention to anyone else. He comes home for the holidays and, like always, his family is to get him in the sack with another sack, if you will. Well, of course, they're not that direct. Barry plays the father, and you can catch a few scenes of him being mushy and doting, very in character for Bostwick. Michael Urie and Barry Bostwick are some pretty big names, but they're not all. The cast also features Philman Chambers, Luke McFarlane, Jennifer Robertson, and comedians Jennifer Coolidge and Kathy Najimy. In a press interview about the film, Kathy Najimi said, I think it was attracted to the script that had a gay love story with three gay leads. It wasn't about all the people who hated them or the people who thought that their religion said that you shouldn't be how you were made. You know what I mean? As Kathy says, it's a no-frills holiday movie that happens to have a gay protagonist. It's festive, funny, and it's got Barry. What more could a staff writer ask for? Give it a watch while you think about all the asshole family members you probably couldn't watch it with. It's out on Netflix now. Single all the way. Go enjoy. We actually almost watched it last night, but instead we watched Tick, Tick, Boom, Begin Again, and Rise of the Guardians. Nice. Some yeah. good holiday movies. Yeah, excellent. The most holiday of movies. <laughs> Up next, we'd like to personally attack each and every one of our listeners for being a stupid idiot. Whoa, Whoa hey, Aaron, watch not it. cool. Settle down. Come on, man. We can. I think what Aaron is trying to say is. I bet you guys thought we'd only have one segment about a Rocky actor newly featured in media. Well, guess what? Richard O'Brien is back on a drama this week, too. You morons. Thinking our only segment about a Rocky cast member in a new show was about Barry? Yeah, you dumb pieces of shit. Plot twist, we're mean for this segment, too. Just kidding. As always, we love all of you, except me. Anyway, Richard O'Brien will be back at it to portray Baron Munchausen in the audio drama The Baron Author for its second season. Director Barnaby Eaton-Jones says, The first series of The Baron Author was supposed to be a one-off, but left gloriously open-ended so the audience could take themselves on their own flights of fancy afterwards. But Richard O'Brien had so much fun doing it that he floated the idea of a second series and, as long as we promised it would match, expand and better the first series, then he'd be happy to return for one more time. Both Richard and Sophie Aldred of Doctor Who fame are reprising their roles in six 30-minute episodes that will kick off right where the last season ended. The Baron is fresh from having shot himself out of a cannon when he suddenly discovers he has the rather annoying ability to travel through time. This unusual power comes at a steep cost. Whether it will be enough to save himself, save the planet, and save his only friend is yet to be seen. The fateful clock is ticking, and time isn't on his side. On his role, Richard says, To have been able to play an amiable old romancer without any deep-seated political agenda has been both pleasing and amusing, while at the same time keeping make-believe firmly where it belongs in the realm of entertainment. What a non-political political statement, Richard. That is the most neutral statement I have ever heard. <laughs> it's It's got big uh, Futurama energy. All I know is my guts say maybe. 
<laughs> Writer of the series, Paul Birch, is also back for this one, with sound design by Joseph Fox and music by Abigail Fox. The graphic design and illustrations are by Robert Hammond. This new second season is available on both SpitefulPuppet.com and Audible. Send Richard and Barry some love and check out their work. And speaking of sending things, why don't we move on to community news? First up in community news, we at Rocky Talkie are so excited to announce that lots and lots of you should soon be receiving some early Christmas presents from Santa. Wait, Fred Moreau is Santa? Shh, don't ruin it for the kids. No, children, Fred Moreau isn't Santa. Why, I've been in the same room as both Santa Claus and Fred literally dozens of times in the past three weeks alone. Do you think they bought it? Yeah, dude, I think we're good. Oh, thank Christ. Well, children, gather round your letterbox as you should all be receiving some presents from Santa's workshop in the Northeast Pole, North Pole, real soon. What, what about Fred's pole? Not Fred. Santa. Oh, yeah. What about Santa's pole? I feel like we usually talk about his sack. You know, his pole doesn't get much attention around Christmas time. Ah, uh, rookie mistake. Like, you gotta pay attention to the sack. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like the pole needs to be the primary focus here. Listen, don't be out here spreading misinformation just because it's not what jingles your bells. Some of us might be into lots of sack attention. Nikki? Do you even have a sack? First of all, none of your business. But you know who does have a sack? Fred? Santa! And it's positively stuffed to the brim with treats and goodies for all you good ho-ho-hos out there. Okay, wait, what the fuck are we even talking about here? Fred's line of shocky pins shipped. If you bought your set from Kickstarter, they're on their way to you, and they should be arriving in your mailbox just in time for Christmas. Meg and I just received our pins a couple days ago, and these things are gorgeous. I'm sure that by now we're all familiar with the high-quality work that Fred produces, and these are no exception. They'd be fantastic gifts for yourself, the Rocky lover in your life, or, you know, your Frank jacket. Even though the Kickstarter is over, fear not. You can still have a full set of these babies sacked into your box whenever you'd like. The set of three enamel pins is available for only $10 on Fred's Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash rock horror. So Rocky Horror without the Y. We'll have that linked in our show notes. Or if you're in the market for gifts for the whole family, the shop also offers a bulk deal. Any 10 enamel pins for the low, low price of $60, which is actually fucking insane. That's so cheap for 10 enamel pins. Right. But you can include a list of your favorites in your purchase order, and they'll be ready to put into stockings in no time. Just like me. What? What? Uh, nothing. And speaking of Aaron and stockings. Next up in community news, guys, how come the UK always has such cool shit going on? They have this TV show on ITV called All-Star Musicals that's like Dancing with the Stars, except it's with musicals. All right. Sounds fucking amazing. In this show, celebrities with zero musical theater training are enrolled in an intensive performance masterclass. And at the end of their training, they each get a chance to wow the judges, celebs from the musical theater world, and they perform a number from a famous Broadway show. I would watch the shit out of that show. 
It sounds like maybe the only celebrity competition show I've ever heard of that I might actually enjoy. We have checked out some videos of the program, and it does look super cool. The production values are really high. The contestants get full sets, costumes, live music, trained backup dancers, and vocalists. Basically, all the components they'd need to be able to be a successful Broadway performer. The only thing that seems to stand between them and victory is their own performance ability. This year, All-Star Musicals will be putting on a special Christmas edition of the show with Elaine Page, who played Grizabella in the OG West End production of Cats, Trevor Dean Nichols, who originated the role of the genie in Disney's Aladdin, and Samantha Barks, who starred as Eponine in the film version of Les Mis, and who is currently playing Elsa in West End's production of Frozen. I didn't know that Samantha Barks was Elsa in Frozen. I'm going to need to go all the way out there now. Just a quick hop over the pond. Yeah, no big deal. And it's hosted by John Barrowman, who played fucking Hottie McHotterson, Captain Jack Harkness on Doctor Who. So this year's contestant lineup was recently announced, and the British celebs who will be taking part are Fern Britton, an author and TV presenter. Ben Miller, a dramatic TV actor. Giles Brandreth, a former politician. Anita Rani. That sounds like a... (laughs) It sounds like an innuendo. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Anita Rodney, a radio and TV presenter. Catherine Tildesley, a model and comedian. And Rodzi Chinyanganya, a children's TV broadcaster. I don't know any of these people. They're British celebrities. You still want to take that trip across the pond? Fucking limeys. (laughs) Damn, so even though some of these people do have performance experience, they really don't seem to have much of a background in anything even remotely close to singing and dancing on stage. Nope. In fact, a lot of their bios, some of them openly admit to not even being able to sing. I'm looking at you, Rodzi. So what does this have to do with Rocky? All right. What do you think? Although not all of the musical numbers and none of the pairings have been announced, we do know that this year's lineup will include numbers from Cats, Moana, and The Rocky Horror Show. Well, we all know there's nothing in the world that's more rocky than being shoved in a corset and fishnets and yeeted headfirst into a performance that you're only kind of prepared for. My favorite musical is Moana. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of interested to see which of these poor bastards is paired with it and to welcome them into the Rocky Horror family. I think something like this definitely qualifies them as, you know, being one of us now. I guess the good thing about getting to perform a Rocky number, at least, is that for most of the songs, bigger is better. So even if you don't have the strongest voice, as long as you're able to show up with a humongous stage performance, it'll be really entertaining to watch. For all of our listeners across the pond, All-Star Musicals will be airing on ITV and ITV Hub on Boxing Day. That's December 26th for all our filthy Americans at 8 p.m. Big Ben time. And for the rest of us, well, we'll just have to wait for the special to be available online. You know, the past couple of these are available in full on YouTube. Just saying. The one from April 2021 is really good. We'll be sure to let you all know where to watch as soon as we find out. I mean, I think we're all kind of psyched to watch this. All right, you blockheads, it's Christmas time, and that means Nikki needs some presents. In fact, you're going to give me the best present of all. I'm not going to bother asking a question this week. You guys figure it out. Merry Christmas to me! Well, that's underwhelming. I think Nikki doesn't understand how the spirit of giving works. 
Oh, I understand. You give, I get. That's the spirit. Not at all. Okay, so uh, I I guess I've got to come up with something then. Um, why why is uh why is why is Brad such such a cuck? That's not a real question. It's because he's a little bitch. And that's our show. No, nope, make try sure- again. <laughs> I mean, it's the best I've got. I don't know, man. Aaron, you got anything good? Buy any new Rocky shit lately? See, not so easy, is it? I'm waiting. Well, uh, in light of anything better, of course I've recently picked up some Rocky Christmas presents for myself. I see Nikki isn't the only one who failed their int check for how Christmas works. Uh, bear with me. These are actually kind of cool. I think that we can make a thread out of them. Uh, they're from fairly early in the fandom. I, I, I don't know, man. It's the best I've got. Let's go. What's first in Aaron's mail sack? You said sack. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so first up is the May-June 1979 issue of Media Scene Magazine. Now... I'd seen this thing out there for quite a while. Since 1979, if I had to guess. Smartass. I mean that, like, nice quality copies have been popping up on eBay and whatever for a while now. And they're actually, like, super affordable. Some are even going for around, like, ten bucks. So, last-minute stocking stuffer is what I'm hearing? Get that overnight shipping. Just in time for Boxing Day. So, there's one bit in here that is incredibly interesting to me, but don't be expecting some crazy rocky resource here. Media Scene is the work of publisher Jim Steranko and was published between 1973 to 1980. Originating as the publication Comic Scene in 1972, it rapidly evolved to cover broader pop culture topics as Media Scene. Though much of the 1979 issue we're taking a look at still has a significant portion dedicated to comics, along with other media. So this is what? Just a review of Rocky from 1979? Published by some comic nerd? Yeah, sounds like it. Though Jim Stranko isn't your average comic nerd. He was a big deal during the Silver Age of comics. He illustrated for Marvel and is widely credited for infusing surrealism, pop art, and graphic design into the medium. He's also the guy who inked the first appearance of Nick Fury in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. in 1965 in collaboration with Jack Kirby. That's where we are first introduced to stuff like the Helicarrier and even the terrorist organization Hydra. Hail Hydra. Ugh. Still a comic nerd. He also conceptualized art and character designs for several films, including Raiders of the Lost Ark and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Well, that's pretty cool, but whatever. This magazine article, in this magazine published by Mr. Comics, the one about Rocky, you know, the thing we do, what's it all about? Don't tell me I just learned about some comic guy for nothing. Honestly, I think you did. It's your fairly standard late 70s mass market article. Most of it focuses on explaining the Midnight Cult phenomenon. It talks about the general plot of Rocky Horror, its origins on the London stage and at the Roxy in California, and what to expect from a midnight screening. It's surprisingly on point for a piece that purports to come from an outsider's perspective, but you have to kind of wonder how much of an outsider someone writing for a niche pop culture magazine in the late 70s could possibly be. Hold on here. I thought Aaron bought a copy of it. Did you also get a copy? Is that just what Aaron got all of us for Christmas? Because fuck that. I'll take a gift card. No, I just googled it. The entire issue of the magazine is available on archive.org. 
We'll drop a link in the show notes if you want to see it for yourself. It's only a three-page feature, so it's a very quick read. But John's right. It's kind of your run-of-the-mill article from the late 70s. But there are a few fun observations in there that I clocked. I think they're kind of interesting, at least in the context of the times. Go on. So... The author of this piece, that's Ken Brusenick, has a really kind of holistic perspective for what thematically brings the late 70s audience to Rocky Horror. That is about the movie itself. And it's all about sex. Now we're talking. Yeah, baby. So he postulates that the younger generation of the 70s that flocked to the local movie theater and the directors that concoct the depictions on the silver screen have all grown too blasé about the typical evil scientists, renegade computers, man-made monsters, and like killer robots. According to Ken, this leaves only the realm of superstitious ignorance and unholy terror for the rebellious young horror filmmaker, sex. Dun dun dun. And Rocky, he points out, oozes sex. From frame one, Ken points to the lips as an obscenely garish introduction to the, quote, unorthodox combination of schlock and softcore pornography that is Rocky Horror. Wait, softcore pornography? I, I don't think so. Like, maybe in 1979, but no, Deep Throat came out in 1972. The world was pretty clear on what hardcore porn even looked like, and Rocky, I mean... Like, Nell shows her tits, but I ain't ever known anyone that wore out their DVD rewinding back and forth during floor show. Well, at least not rewinding to check out Nell's tits. More like learning the stupid Columbia blocking. Um, her boobs are kind of the awesome bonus you get for putting in the work to learn pre-show. Just saying, just saying. What the fuck was that? Meg wanted to make sure she got credit for that nugget of wisdom. They are kind of a bonus. A huge bonerous. Calm your bonerous, because not two sentences later, Ken pushes up his nerd glasses to call the science fiction double feature a genuinely knowledgeable evocation of sci-fi films from the past. Yo, Ken sounds so hot. Like, unironically. Get out of here, Meg. God damn it. I see Nikki found the copy that I sent her for Christmas as well. Nope, I just opened the link John sent me. On the internet, you fucking boomer. And did you see this? Before he even starts talking about the plot of Rocky, Ken fucking calls us out personally. He says, Any deep analysis of the Rocky phenomenon seems somehow unethical to the mindless release of harmless inhibitions it triggers. You heard it here first, folks. Everything we do is totally unethical. He got that part right, at least. Uh, The second half of the article focuses on the audience's reaction to the cult film, By 1979, Rocky as a cult phenomenon was at the beginning of the early 80s peak that would crest in the middle of the decade. There's a big section devoted to talking about callbacks and props. By that point, already there's a cacophony of sound and pounds of rice and squirt guns aplenty. There's even a brief mention of the costume performers that take to the stage before the movie to act out the scenes alongside the soundtrack, but there's no mention of full shadow casting here. Though the beginnings of which were definitely present in some theaters in the country, the majority were not yet acting alongside the film. But speaking of unethical, you gotta love this quote of vintage late 70s nostalgia. Ken writes, The younger drawn to the film primarily, and no one seems to question anybody's age for the relatively mild R-rated film. 
Theater managers have been observed in their ticket booths, rapturously gripping double fistfuls of dollar bills and gritting foolishly at the long lines waiting to get in. Yeah, that's going to score a big yikes for me. The 70s were definitely a different time. And not only that, but I can't believe you missed this, John. Right before he talks about kids at Rocky, Ken proves that he is clearly a nerd when he writes, Drugs are not really a part of the Rocky Horror scene. Only a smuggled-in can of beer seems suitably tacky. Yeah, I think Ken might have just been going to see Rocky with the wrong crowd. Or maybe just a different crowd. Late 70s Rocky is notoriously a home for the mind-expanding teenagers. You know, dropping acid, smoking weed, and getting up to all manner of mischief. I mean, it's the 70s, man. A smuggled-in can of beer. Alright, I'll say it. Fucking nerd. So don't get me wrong, Aaron. This is a cute portrait of late 70s Rocky. But you said there was something in here that really piqued your interest. And for the life of me, I can't figure out what it is. It's the ads. Are you kidding me? Of fucking course it is. The ads. Why didn't we think of that, Nikki? These better be good. What is this? An ad for a couple of poster magazines and the Rocky Horror scrapbook? What's so interesting about those? If you look closely, you might notice that all three of those publications are being advertised with covers that they were never released with. I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm just kidding. It's not that ad. It's the one on the other side of the page that's actually, like, super cool. What? This one above the photos? Special notice to all time warpers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. Special notice to all time warpers. The following costumes used in the Rocky Horror Picture Show are up for grabs to the highest bidder. Regular Frankie fans need no introductions. All others are invited to come up to the lab. All prices are minimum bids. And then it's a big list of costumes with, I don't know, bids. What is so interesting about this? Read read the end. Each item comes with a certificate of authenticity from Sue Blaine, costume mistress for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Each character item has the star's name stitched inside. Bidding is open until the fall. Bids may be addressed to Starfleet Enterprises at some address in Brooklyn. Wait, hold on. These aren't like reproduction costume pieces. These are the original costume pieces from the movie? Exactly. Oh, holy crap. Wait a minute. So these were like the minimum bids, but hold on. Frankenfurter's floor show shoes, $500. Frankenfurter's dinner corset slash frock, $500. Magenta's space boots, $300. Magenta's black bra dinner scene, $200. Are you kidding me? Is this how these pieces got out in the community? I know like Ruth from the anal costume list owns the dinner corset. Did she get it from here? So that's what's so fascinating. No, she didn't. Ruth obtained Frank's dinner corset at an auction from Dory Hartley at the 25th anniversary in 2000. Dory said she was handed the corset by Sue Blaine at a convention many years ago. Wait, but if Sue Blaine had it, that means that it didn't sell in this auction. Which means one of two things. The auction was canceled, or, and I kind of struggle with this, Nobody bothered to offer $500 to own Frank's dinner corset. You're joking. Not at all. I mean, you could see why this had me reeling. For some of these items, I'm guessing that you could have bid exactly the minimum and probably won the auction. 
That's fucking nuts. I mean, these are 1979 prices. Adjusted for inflation, you're going to have to multiply them by like almost four. But for real, that would make Frank's dinner corset like $2,000 today. And who the hell wouldn't scrounge through the couch to find the money to bid on that? Sometimes I think you live on a different planet. The only thing hidden in my couch are like four McDonald's fries and half a bottle of vodka. Regardless, there's a lot more on here. What the hell is this? Janet Weiss's complete outfit, including cardigan sweater, pink dress, bra, and half slip, a hundred fucking dollars. That's only $400 today. That's ridiculous. Brad's floor show corset, a hundred dollars. Brad's floor show corset from superheroes, a hundred dollars. Brad's floor show gauntlet, 75 bucks. Dr. Scott's garter belt, $50. Jesus. Columbia's garter belt, $75. Well, that seems a little unfair to Jonathan Adams. One miscellaneous Transylvanian jacket from the Time Warp sequence, $100. Two pairs of fishnet stockings from Floor Show, $25 a pair. And last but not least, a feather boa, $25. Wait, where is there a feather boa in the movie? Not in Floor Show. Who knows? I suppose it's lost to time. Well, now I want to know more about this auction. Did anyone actually walk away with these pieces? Or did Sue Blaine just have to hang on to them and dole them out at conventions over the next decade? I mean, we know that Sal Piro ended up with Janet's pink dress at some point. The pictures on the anal retentive site come from Megan Trabor at an early convention in Las Vegas. And at least one of Frank's floor show shoes went to Alan Hero, who ran the original Rocky Horror Shop. He supposedly won it at an auction... Who knows if it was this auction or some other one. The shoe, along with the other items in the Rocky Horror Shop collection, went to Betsy Wojcik when she took over the Shop Talk fanzine. And the current owner acquired the shoe from her, and it was from them that Ruth was able to photograph the pictures on the costume site. Why is this, like, super interesting? It's just tracking the providence of the original costume pieces, but it feels like some sort of treasure hunt. And you were calling people nerds, Nikki. Now look at you. You fucking nerd. And proud of it. So, all right, I think you can see why I found this thing kind of cool. It's one of the really weird things about picking up some of these vintage magazine pieces, especially the early stuff from the 70s and the 80s. You never know what kind of weird nuggets of information you might stumble across, even if they're hidden in the ads. I'll admit it. That was pretty cool. What else do you have for us? Something else in that mail sack? You said sack. Damn right I did. Big, bulging, sack. Ahem. Anyway, yeah, uh, I've got two more pieces here. Uh, The first one you guys might find a little less interesting, even though it ties into the Rocky fandom a lot more directly. Uh, I was able to pick up a copy of True Life Horror Stories. That's the fanzine that was published by Paul Spiegel and John Mandraccia and also released in 1979. I hate that I know who they are. Those are the guys from the first and second Rocky Horror Conventions from way back when. 1978 at the Calderon Concert Hall, out in Long Island in New York. Why the hell do I remember these things? Also, I have two cousins from Long Island with the last name Calderon. Coincidence much? 
Well, Nikki's got at least part of it. Uh, <laughs> this is one of the earliest fan publications, and certainly one of the earliest that had incredibly high production values. It's an oversized eight-page magazine done in full color on like high-gloss paper. It's very well laid out, and it's really ahead of its time as far as fan publications go. So what's the cool little Easter egg here? Don't mention Easter eggs. We solved that. Little Nell already told us. Nothing too crazy here. I recognized a lot of stuff. Uh, This being the source for a number of facts and photos that have been widely disseminated and used all over the place. Including a number of tidbits that are used in Jim Whitaker's Cosmic Light and Phil Barden and Rob Bagnall's Still the Beast is Feeding. And though the bibliographic entries for those books do not credit this fanzine directly, you can trace some of them, Kevin Bacon style, back to this fanzine issue. Okay, that's a bit too nerdy. There's a lot of great articles here too, uh, including an account of the first and second Rocky conventions, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. They were written by John Mandraccia. He tells of meeting Patricia Quinn at the airport, her looking for an older gentleman, and upon finding the 16-year-old Mandraccia, she exclaimed, Oh dear. I bet. (laughs) Uh, This issue is also the source of some of the photos that we have floating around of one of Richard O'Brien's follow-up musicals to Rocky Horror, Disaster, where he performed with Rocky alum Patricia Quinn, Jonathan Adams, Christopher Malcolm, uh, with music arranged by Richard Hartley, designs from Brian Thompson, and costumes done by Sue Blaine. But since this is a podcast, Aaron, I don't think we'll go into too much detail there. How about we call this a present for the community? This one, I couldn't find any full scans of online. I I know. I've been looking for a copy for like several years now. Well, like John said, let's call it a present to all of our listeners out there. How about you scan the entire thing and toss it up in our show notes? I've already uploaded it. Let me me just send you guys the PDF here. Amazing. So if anyone out there hasn't seen this before, definitely go check out our show notes for the complete scan of true life horror stories. You won't find it anywhere else on the internet. But before we wrap up with this one, I want to mention one little tidbit that should segue us nicely into the next item in my mailbag. <laughs> you said bag. What? See, in 1979, one of the biggest conversations in the community was around the inevitable Rocky Horror sequel. What would it be? Which of the actors would return? Would Frank rise again? And, well, what was in store for Rocky in the go-go 80s? For real. It actually takes up the entire back page of True Life Horror Stories. A bit of a teaser, it reads, A sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show is on its way. Richard O'Brien tells us that filming will begin sometime around January 1980. Rumor has it that the sequel will take up where the first Rocky left off and that most of the original cast will be in it. Well, so much for rumors. Bit of an oopsie on that one. There's even another bit halfway through the issue. Basically, a quick biography of Jonathan Adams, but it opens up with another wonderful piece of pre-shock treatment hype. If you are to believe all the rumors that are circulating around, the character of Dr. Scott will be one of the very important returnees to the Rocky Horror Picture Show sequel, and so too will Jonathan Adams. Don't believe everything you read, kids. Seriously. Though... From the info that they had at the time, Dr. Scott was actually a pivotal character in The Brad and Janet Show. That's Richard O'Brien's original treatment that would later go on to be revised, chopped, and shuffled into shock treatment. We have access to that draft script, thanks to Ruth Fink Winter's original transcription, that can be seen today on RockyMusic.org. 
In it, Scotty plays the station manager, a role that would eventually become Bert Schnick in League with Farley and managing the DTV television station. You might recall that in the early treatment for Shockey, everything wasn't self-contained in a single studio. The events of the film were to unfold all across the town of Denton. And at the end of the film, Scott was to be crowned the director of Farley's new sanatorium, where the inhabitants of Denton are all baptized into insanity. I fucking hate shock treatment. I've honestly never watched it properly. Well, then you'll both hate this last item I've got in my mailbag. You said bag. Wow. Weak, Nikki. Weak. Weak like your bag after I punch you in the balls. Got him! Give it to me, baby! Right. So, this last pickup is a copy of the original 1981 press booklet from Fox for shock treatment. Now, a copy of this has been floating around forever. The full text is up on rockymusic.org, but... I don't know, it's the inner nerd in me. There's something to be said for the tactile experience of, like, opening up the press packet and flipping through the glossy photos and, like, getting to go through the stapled little booklet that was put together by some poor Fox intern. At least with this, you can kind of believe everything you read. It comes straight from Fox. All hail our corporate overlords. I hadn't taken a look at this since I stumbled across the original transcription years and years ago, and I was kind of surprised going back through it to see how much detail was in here. Did they explain what happened that made them get rid of Scott? Surprisingly, Richard O'Brien does touch on it in one of his interviews that's included in the packet. He said, uh, When we initially conceived shock treatment, Brad and Janet's home was a real place. The Dentonvale Sanitarium was real. Everything was real. The film was set in an American suburb, and we were going to shoot as much as we could on location in the USA, but then the screen actor strike intervened, and it turned out to be a stroke of good luck. We had to film the picture in England, but since we couldn't recreate American locations there, the movie had to be shot in a studio. It was then that we came up with the idea of setting the whole production inside of a TV studio and making the entire film look like it was shot off a television soundstage. Oh, so the absolute mess that is shock treatment is the result of good old-fashioned union busting. What's more American than that? That's a little too topical, Nikki. Certainly explains a lot. There's a few other gems in here, too. One of my favorites is how Cliff DeYoung modeled his version of Brad Majors after David Eisenhower. David was the grandson of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, son-in-law of President Richard Nixon, and he's who Camp David is named after. His marriage to President Nixon's daughter Julie is cited by Credence Clearwater Revival's John Fogarty as one of the many inspirations for the band's counterculture anti-military anthem, Fortunate Son. What did I say? Nothing more American than that. I believe this is also the source that reveals that Cliff DeYoung had been originally contacted to play Brad in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, before the team had found Barry Bostwick. After working with Jim Sharman in the New York production of The Trials of Oz, he had called Cliff in 1975 when they were in pre-production for the film adaptation of Rocky Horror. Cliff was busy doing a television series in California and had to decline playing Brad. What a world that could have been, right? We'd be talking all about good old Uncle Cliff. I mean, the fuck would Jacob do? Would he just be like a huge Megaforce fan? Damn right I would be. I'd love my bear bear, even if he was never everyone's favorite asshole. 
God damn it, Jacob. Get out of my knack snack. Oh, I just wanted to say goodbye to 2021 and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. Is that a fucking Megaforce quote? It's all on the wheel. It all comes around. Nope, you're done. But uh, speaking of quotes, there's also a great quote from Jessica Harper about how she sees Janet. This is nothing mind-blowing, but it's certainly something to remember for everyone out there who shadow casts Shockey. In the first movie, Jessica Harper says, Janet was loyal to Brad, but also interested in exploring the bizarre world of Transylvania that she and Brad stumbled upon. Similarly, in this movie, she is still loyal to Brad, but really loves being on television and doing all these odd things with all these odd people. She's not at all reluctant to leap into this new role of TV superstar that's being offered to her. She discovers that she really is a naughty girl. Janet's a naughty girl. You heard it here first. Yeah, she is. Jacob! Sorry. Sorry. Peace out, bitches. Happy New Year. And uh, throw it back to our previous discussion, there's one other fun note here. I don't know if this is actually true, but in the interview with Charles Gray, he mentions the often quoted fact that he never sees his own movies, including Rocky Horror. But of the film, he did have this to say. It's quite a shock, all the madness that it's erupted around the whole Rocky Horror phenomenon. Sal Piero, the president of the Rocky Horror fan club, has the coat I wore in that film and he lends it out on special occasions. It's sort of a relic, like I am. Wait, so just how many of the damn costumes did Sal get his hands on? Ugh, I have to know. Well, join us next year for Nikki Asked the Question 2022 edition. Maybe next year we'll get Sal to answer some of our burning questions? Oh, I'm sure he's got way better shit to do. Well, until then, wishing you all a happy holidays and an amazing new year. And that's our show. We want to thank you. Yes, you. A big thank you to all of our listeners out there for our first full year of Rocky Talkie. We can't do this show without our community. And from the bottom of our cold, dead hearts, thank you for all the questions, big dick stories, announcements, research materials, fact-checking, and just being generally fucking amazing people. We'd like to extend an extra special thanks to Gene Chiavari, Tony Pazuzu, Larry Vizel, Ruth Fink-Winter, Phil Dijon, Ron and Hillary Maxwell, Roy Rossi, Fred Moreau, Ron Camor, Harley Bean, Jamie Ryan and Allie over at RHBS Buffalo, Tori from Tesseract, Sam over at JCCP, and of course, our favorite groupie Gretchen. And just dozens and dozens more of you, far too numerous to list. This is just a small sampling of the many, many community members that have contributed to our first year of Rocky Talkie. Thank you. And as always, we'd like to thank our writer Jacob, our editor Aaron from Tennessee, and our super hot producer Meg. We appreciate all your work. If anyone has a question that they'd like us to answer on air for Nikki Asks a Question, or some community news that they'd like us to talk about, or even a cool story to share with the community, we would love to include it on our show. Just go to our website, rockytalkypodcast.com, and fill out our contact form to tell us about it. If you're enjoying Rocky Talkie, please help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. It makes the podcast more accessible to new listeners, which really helps us grow the show. And if you want even more Rocky Talkie content, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok, all at Rocky Talkie Podcast. We'll talk to you all next year. Bye. 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 See you. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, Bye. 58. Uh.
Michael Yuri, who you might know from Ugly Betty, plays the... What is that word? Progenital. <laughs> Genital. <laughs> Got him. Plays the progenital son to... Okay. And next up is Nikki asks a question. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, hold on. No context. My grandma just texted me chicken paprikash. This is the best day of my life. I agree with her, honestly. She spelled it so wrong. I love her so much. Okay, let's go to community news. Do y'all give me these names as a joke? Yes. <laughs> yeah. What? Can I? Is it real? What is his name? Rodzi Chinyanganya. I guess the good thing about being getting, being getting, yep, good job, John. I, I, can someone throw my mouth out? <laughs> I see Nikki isn't the only one that failed their INT check for how Christmas works. That's an int check. What the fuck is an int check? It's a D&D &D reference. Oh. Super cystit, what the fuck? Super cystitus? What the fuck is that word? Superstitious. That's probably just spelled wrong. It's I think it's supposed wrong. to be superstitious. Yeah. Just, <laughs> super why is there no little line that tells me it's it's too fucked up of a word for superstitious? <laughs> yeah. Damn right I would be. I'd love my bear bear even if he was never anybody's favorite asshole. God damn it, Jacob. Get out of my knack snack. Oh, okay. I just wanted to say goodbye to 2021 and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. Is that a fucking Megaforce quote? It's all on the wheel. It all comes around. Janet's a naughty girl. You heard it here first. Yeah, she is. Jacob. Sorry, sorry. Peace out, bitches. Happy New Year.